This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, The Beginning, and it comes from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tile rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense of providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast. We're there too, whether that's iTunes or Google or Amazon or Spotify. We're there. Just search for WMER Radio Bible Class no spaces between radio Bible class. Well, today we're starting a new study of a book. And as I do when I normally start a new study, is we'll give you a brief background of that book and who wrote the book and the context of it. Because it's important that we understand the context, what was going on at that time, why this particular book was written and added to the Bible. First John is a really short book. It's only five chapters. But it's very rich, so we won't go through it in five weeks. It'll take us several weeks to go through it. Matter of fact, today we're just going to cover the first four verses of 1 John 1. And if you're looking for 1 John in your Bible, it'll be go all the way to Revelations, then you have Jude, and then you have 3 John, 2 John, and 1 John. Now this book, 1 John, carries the title of the author, and theologians estimate that this particular letter was written around 85 to 90 A.D., now, John is pretty old at this point in his life. He's estimated to be 80 to 85 years old. He was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He was thought to be somewhere in his late teens to 20 years old when he started following Jesus. At this point, he's the last of the apostles. And at his old age, he pens these final epistles. Also, if you study, you'll find that this letter nowhere carries his name except in the title. But if you look at the language that is in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, it is the same language, it's the same verb uses as we see in the Gospel of John. Now, some liberal theologians say that we don't know who wrote this, but like I said, based on his style, his substance, and his sources, we can point this back to John. If you look at that style, I told you that that's one of the things that lets us know that John wrote this. Ten similar statements are made in this book, 1 John, and the Gospel of John that we do know that John wrote. The other thing we see is substance. We'll look at the first four verses today, and John talks about being an eyewitness. 
being there to touch, to see, and behold all that happened. And so again, being the oldest and the remaining apostle, that also ties him back to this. And then I told you sources. Again, if you go back and you look at the early translators of the Bible, Papadus was one of those that names John. Again, I think all those sources, all the substance, and then the style confirms that this was written by John, and I'm very confident in saying that as well. The other thing to understand context, we need to understand the purpose of this letter. Why did John write this letter? Well, well, John, unlike Paul, is very clear. He makes it easy for us. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says to make our joy full or complete. He also tells us in chapter 2 and verse 1, he wants to warn us about habitual sin. On that same topic, in chapter 2, verse 26, he wants to put away false teachers. He wants to debunk what they're teaching in the church. And then in chapter 5, he says that he wants to assure us of our salvation. That's chapter 5, verse 13. So again, these four reasons was the purpose of this letter as John penned it. Overall, I would tell you that this particular letter can be challenging, the first time you read through it, sometimes it'll make you doubt your salvation. But we see in chapter 5 that he helps secure and let us stand firm in our salvation. Now, the reason why he's writing this is back in, around this time, Gnosticism had creeped into the church to the point that it was becoming a problem. As you study church history, you learn that this Gnosticism actually became a stronghold even into the 2nd and the 3rd century AD. This Gnosticism really had, takes a stronghold. So for a couple of hundred years, this false teaching filtrates itself into the church and it has to be worked back out. And so this is just bleeding into the church as John is addressing this letter to the church. I know some of you are asking, Tim, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means knowledge. And so this heresy works its way into the church because there were people, especially the Greeks, that believed knowledge was the way to salvation. It's the opposite of what we say today. It's about what you know and not who you know. Now, the other thing to understand is that this thinking had the idea that physical was evil and spiritual was good, and they separated the two. As a matter of fact, they believed that Jesus was spiritual and not physical because the physical side was evil, but as long as the spiritual side was there, it was good. Now, this idea of Jesus just being a spirit, we know is not true, and we can see that John even addresses this in the gospel. When he starts off in chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he who I said would come after the ranks before me, because he was before me. And so he's saying there, now he's not talking about himself, he's talking about John the Baptist, even foretold, of Jesus coming in flesh and dwelling among us. And we also know that our flesh has a sinful nature, but it's how that we respond to that. That's why the Bible teaches us that we have to die to ourselves. We have to walk in the Spirit. And Jesus didn't sin. The Bible teaches us that as well, that he came, he, was, um, he walked among us, he 
sweated like we sweat. He had hunger pain like we have hunger pains. Yet he was all God. So this idea of the spiritual being separated from the flesh is not a fact. And so John has to address this, this theology, this thinking. Well, anyhow, Gnosticism even today exists because in essence, what they taught was if you separate the two, that flesh is bad, it doesn't really matter how you live if the spirit is good. And you and you know and you have the spirit, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live however you want as long as you know more, as long as you know about the Father. And so what's happening, and it's still happening today, is people lived however they wanted to live. They lived openly in sin. They looked no different, yet they thought they were Christians because they had the spiritual knowledge. And so John addresses this. And so what we need to learn from this is, yes, there is grace. And Gnosticism is almost like sloppy grace. There's a lot of sloppy Christians back then. There's still a lot of sloppy Christians today that use grace as their method of saying, I can live how I want. I live under grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, as Paul wrote. The problem is, Paul says, well, if that's the case, then should we keep on sinning? And what does he say? He says, no. Look at Romans 6 with me real quick. And it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness in life. Sadly, this sounds like Christians I know that say, well, I can just keep on sinning. I can live how I want to because I'm going to be forgiven because of grace. But Paul, if he was standing there and if Jesus was standing there, he would say, did you not die and raise back to me? Did you not die to yourself and I give you a new creation? Did I make you not new? See, our old way was nailed to the cross with Christ. We made a decision that we were going to die to that sin, that we were going to turn from that sin, and we were going to live like Jesus and become more like Jesus every day. Understand, you are dead to sin if you are saved and you are alive with Christ. And that's what Jesus did for us. And so we need to live in the Spirit because, yes, we're going to sin. And I want to be careful to say that no one lives a perfect life after they're saved. But we should be striving to live more like Christ every day. We shouldn't be saying, okay, it's okay to sin. And that's what this whole Gnosticism taught was that kind of thinking. And it still exists today in, our, in the world and in the church. So with all that said, let's turn to 1 John, the first chapter. We'll start in verse 1. I'm reading out the ESV. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be made complete." Well, he starts off right there in verse 1. 
the beginning, that which was from the beginning. And in this first verse, he lists five ways that the revelation of Jesus was validated. Now, this from the beginning is similar to what John writes in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. And that parallels Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the interpretation is that God has been eternal. Before anything, God existed. God existed always and will exist forever. And again, even in verse 2, we see that he alludes to the Trinity, where he says that Jesus, or the Word, was with the Father. John is making sure everyone understands that from the beginning, before the world was founded, before you were thought of, God existed, and Jesus, the Word that came and dwelt among us, was with him. Now, there are other commentators that challenge this, and they say, no, that's not what John was really meaning, that instead he meant that the beginning of the gospel, that right here he's starting to challenge Gnosticism, that the message has not changed. It's the same message that they proclaimed in the earliest days when the gospel was told and when, they, when those listening to him would have heard the gospel. And it's about Christ's humanity, how he was a person. And we're going to dive into that even more. And so some commentators say, no, he's not really talking about God's eternal presence, but he's talking about the gospel and how it hasn't changed. It was humanity at the beginning and it's still today. But either way, you should be looking at what it points to. It points to God. It points to that God created the heavens and the earth and that God always existed. Even at the beginning of the gospel, what Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came down as a baby. He dwelt among us. So John takes us back in time to eternity past to meet the one that was there from the beginning. And then John adds credibility where he says that he came to earth and that they personally experienced this eternal one, this word. And then in the second half of the verse, he says, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life which really makes me jump immediately to John 14, 6, where Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he continues in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Have you ever had anybody tell you a story and you start drilling into it and you're like, well, were you there? Well, no, I wasn't. So-and-so told me. Well, what John is saying here is that he's saying, this isn't hearsay. This isn't a legend passed down. This isn't some conjecture. But we had certainty and we wrote and we preached about it because we were there, because we heard Jesus. We saw Jesus. We looked upon Jesus and we looked upon what he did. We touched Jesus with our hands. See, this is important that they understand the credibility of what is being written. Now, if you're like me, you jump on social media today hoping to catch that latest personal update from a friend or a family member. You find out what they ate or what they're doing. But what we find today, there's this term called fake news. One, they want to be like somebody, so they put out whether it's true or not. They post pictures to make their life look a certain way. And in modern day language, John is saying this isn't fake news. This isn't some conjecture. 
This isn't some method of trying to get you to believe something the way I see it. I'm telling you what I saw. I'm telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I looked and watched. I'm telling you what my hands touched. This isn't fake news. It also could be thought fake news because think about this. How enormous this was that God stepped down out of heaven and became man in the most basic way. That anyone could see him and touch him and yet he was God even though he was in man's body. I mean, it doesn't seem real. It seems like fake news. But John, in his own word, is saying that, look, I'm not speaking of a myth, or I'm not telling some clever story tale. I'm telling you the Eternal One stepped out and I was with him. And then understand why this is important as well. Gnosticism has got into the church, is being birthed into the church. It's a dangerous teaching about Jesus wasn't really man. That Jesus was God, but he wasn't actually physically man. Instead, he was some pseudo-physical phantom. And John declares, that's not true. I heard him. I saw him. I studied him. I touched him. And then John identifies him as the word of life. Now, if you look at that word there, logos is the Greek that we see for word. You might ask, why would John use the word logos? We, again, understand the time. And remember that John is writing to the Jews, and the Jews understood that God revealed himself in his word. He's also writing to the Greeks. What did the Greeks believe? Logos was the Greek word. It meant that the Greek philosophers had used that for centuries, and they had taught about how that's how everything came into existence, how intelligence was found through the universe, the ultimate reasoning and what controlled everything. And so John tells them, hey, This Logos that you've been writing about, that you've been teaching about for centuries? Well, we've heard him. We've seen him. We studied him. And we touched him. And then, again, John puts a dagger right in the Gnosticism, and he says that the life was manifested. This life was manifested means that it was made. It was actually there. It was physical. It was real. In John 5, 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's saying that God gave life to Jesus when he became eternal life that came and dwelt among us, and he gave him the authority. He gave the power to his Son. Remember when we studied about the great I Ams, what was one of the great I Ams in John 6? John 6, 48, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm all that you need. I am life. I give you eternal life. And you just need your daily dose of me. You need your daily bread. Again, do you remember when Lazarus died and Jesus is sitting there talking to Martha and he says what to her? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And we see throughout Jesus' time here in those three examples where he talks about that he is the life. He is the bread of life. And anyone that believes in him will have eternal life. But we see that we've seen him with our eyes. We've heard him. We've touched him. And we touched him even after his resurrection. Remember in John 20, 27, where Jesus told Thomas, stick your fingers in my side? They touched him. They saw him. They saw the nail-scarred hands. They saw Jesus even after his resurrection. And then you also got to understand that he uses that word life. Jesus was the eternal life. He's debunking that it's not just about knowledge, but it's also about life. Remember Nicodemus as the teacher? He knew a lot about Jesus. He would have told you he was as good of any Christian that was around. 
until he met Jesus. But after meeting Jesus, he understood it wasn't about just knowing or having knowledge of Jesus, but it was needed to have a new life through a new birth. And so it's important that we understand that it's not just a matter of knowing and assimilating facts about Jesus Christ. That's not going to get us into heaven. It's a matter of Christ raising us from spiritual death to life. See, Jesus talks about this. He taught on this. If you go to Luke chapter 10, verse 21, he says that the Father had hidden things from the wise and revealed them to the infants. And Matthew, he adds to that, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal himself. Paul wrote a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where he says, Among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is in the image of God. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that God blinds us when we're in our sin, and it's it's him who wakes us up, and then we have to respond to that calling. We can't, and we will not see the truth until the Holy Spirit comes and knocks on our heart and opens our eyes and reveals that to us. It is the core of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he wraps up this these final verses with fellowship which literally means to share in common. That word fellowship there is cornea. And we're going to see this theme throughout the book, but this fellowship that he's talking about is what we share in common. And that is that we know Jesus Christ and he's made us alive, but it's not only with Jesus Christ, but it's with one another. And he starts off that way. He says, what? So that you too have fellowship with us. There's that horizontal piece where we are to love and have fellowship with one another. We're to, But then how does he finish? He finishes with, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, that's the vertical fellowship, the personal relationship that we have to have with Jesus Christ on a daily basis. How that we die to ourselves daily, how we take up our cross and we follow him. See, Christianity is not a one and done. It is really a realization of a relationship with God and with others. It is a vertical relationship and it's a horizontal relationship. See, we should be growing with Christ every day. We should be growing into a mighty red oak like they have out in California. Sure, we don't start off as a red oak, but we should be growing as that tree does and it grows bigger and bigger. But you know what else about that red oak? It doesn't have a deep root. It has wide roots. And it says the reason why the winds that come off Pacific don't take those big trees and tip them over is because their roots reach out to one another and they grab one another. They hold on and they hold each other up. And that's the way it should be horizontally and vertically. And then how does John finish up? John says that I'm writing these things. This is one of the reasons why he wrote this this letter, that our joy may be made complete. It's true that when we're in Christ, that our joy is made complete when we grow in him and we don't live a sloppy Christian life. I heard a pastor say one time that joy in the Lord is essential, and I agree with him. John Piper points out that we can't glorify God properly unless we enjoy him thoroughly. Throughout the Bible, we see where the Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord, be glad in God, be happy. And if you truly want to glorify God, then you find genuine joy in any situation you're in. You rejoice in the Lord always. Time went by fast today, so 
Let me finish with this final thought. The Apostle Paul demonstrated that spiritual joy is possible even during times of adversity. In fact, his epistle to the Philippians, which we just recently studied, was written during his time of imprisonment. And it's known that it is repeated throughout about rejoicing. If you're honest with yourself, if you've been a Christian just a short time, or if you've been a Christian for a long time, each and every one of us at some time feel like we've lost our joy. And this can happen because of several reasons. One, we can get our focus off Jesus. Paul was able to praise God despite of his trials because where was his focus? It wasn't on him and what he was going through. It was on Jesus. Sometimes our, our joy is stolen because of disobedience. Sin will steal your joy faster than anything. It disrupts our fellowship. It messes up that vertical relationship that we have. Fear can steal our joy. Joy and fear cannot coexist. They're opposites. We're called to live by faith. And through that faith, we have joy. We're focused on Jesus and what he can do. And we quit worrying about what we have to do, that Jesus will see us through it. And that's what John is trying to get to, that whatever we're facing, we need to stand up. We need to move forward in faith. And we need to believe in the evidence that was given right here that John says that Jesus existed. I touched him. I heard him. I watched him. The question for you today is, do you have joy in the Lord? Are you constantly downcast? Do you have a poor witness of hope? Then we need to change our gaze. We need to change and look at Jesus. We need to let his joy become our joy. And then it can overflow to those that are around us. Maybe you don't know this joy. And today I ask you to make Jesus Lord of your life. Maybe some of you have never really turned from that sin. You prayed a prayer. But you never turn from that sin. Today is the day to turn and chase after him. Let Jesus change your life. Will you do that today? Let us pray. Dear Holy Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we just thank you for our time together. Lord, I thank you for this short book, but yet this powerful book. Lord, as we get into it, we're going to see that, that we need to challenge a way that we live out our life, that there are Christians we can't live a sloppy life. We can't believe that grace covers sin, so therefore we can live however we want to. That we are to be growing that vertical relationship, and we're to grow those horizontal relationships. Lord, you show us that you've existed before the earth, and you'll exist after the earth. That you have always been there, and Jesus was with you, and that he stepped out of heaven. He made a way over our sin problem that each of us have. And Lord, that he manifested himself. He came, he walked, he sweated, he felt hungry like we did. And Lord, that he went to the cross and carried all of our sins. And Lord, that he not only died on the cross to be the perfect sacrifice because he had no sin, but Lord, that he overcame death and he gives us a, a way and an eternal hope that we will come and spend eternity with you. And that should give us joy as we look at how Christ completed that for us. Lord, I pray today for the one that is going through a trouble right now. Lord, I pray that they will stand in faith. They will look at you and walk in faith through that troubled water. Lord, I pray right now that you will just help them. They'll lay it at your feet. Lord, I pray for the one that doesn't know you. Lord, I pray today that they would ask you to make you Lord of their life. Lord, they would believe in their heart. Lord, they would mean the prayer that they're praying that to make you Lord of their life. Come and make them whole. Wash them white as snow. 
And Lord, that they will turn from their sins and they will chase after you. Lord, we thank you for all the many blessings you give us in this ministry. It's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.